Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Sapna. How are you? I'm doing well, Hyder. How are you? Yeah, good, good. Just before we, you know, we've come online, we talked about how I'm affected by, you know, the seasonal. Um, it's become a bit of a, a a buzzword, isn't it? Seasonal affective disorder, or or something along those lines, um, which is nice, I guess, because now people are realizing that your your emotion and your affect can be influenced by many things. Yeah, no, I, you're not alone on that. Uh, winter is hard for me as well, just because of the lack of daylight, and I like to be outside as much as possible. So you know, once. Uh, and then we go to work in the dark, we come home in the dark. It's it's not very appealing. Well, I mean, ophthalmology is, is, is even more depressing because we actually work in the actual darkness. You know, we, we switch off the lights and and you know, we kind you know, kind of work in the dark, which makes it even more darker. And I remember many, many, many years ago, um, we used to use really simple instruments and yeah, you, you switch off the lights, you you have a little sort of light source, and then you do all these different tests. Uh, and I thought to myself, hmm, is this is this for me? And then I saw a friend of mine um, who, uh, who probably haven't seen for six months, and he was literally down in the dungeon for six months doing his work. And when I saw him, he had, you know, he had bags around his eyes. He, he looked so miserable and... You know, his uh, eyes were to the floor. <laughs> I thought to myself, mm, you know, do you want to... And, you know, this guy's quite a successful ophthalmologist and he's very good at what he does. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he didn't look too happy. No, I think we really underestimate what, uh, what you know seasons or sunlight or weather what how it affects our mood i mean you've never seen anybody in the tropics really upset yeah of course of course i mean going on vacation is always great but i really do think that we derive a lot of our affect right our mood from from nature and you know that's very well tied to the weather yeah yeah i, I remember the first time i went to the middle east as a physician, um, it was quite fascinating because, you know, my mood was up, the sun everywhere, it was hot. And, you know, that was totally uh, antithetical to my normal medical environment in the UK of, <laughs> you know, cold and damp and dark. And then yeah. I went into this hospital and, yeah, I thought, wow, this is something that I guess I can do. Um, but once you start working there, you know, it's kind of the same thing, except that I guess people have the energy to sort of complain and shout and be aggressive and, and you know, just just uh, be angry because, you know, the mood is high, but it's still in that kind of, 
you know, the wrong place, so to speak, rather than, you know, well, I mean, it's not the wrong place. I, I guess everything, you know, because now in society, everything has to be so good and positive and wonderful <laughs> and so on. <laughs> you can't say anything negative about anything these days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, heaven forbid that you should actually speak the truth, right? There's a lot of attraction. Uh, people can actually get a lot of negative negative feedback for speaking the truth um, because it's not always positive. I mean, life is hard. Life is hard. It's not like some storybook or some Netflix film that's just awesome all the time, you know? I mean, it's, we have a lot of high points, but life is hard. Adulting is hard. It's probably the biggest lie out of... Uh, but the biggest lie of life, right? That in home ownership, because it takes a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, in the long term, it's worth it. And, you know, that's the only kind of equation that we have in life anyway. Right. You know, which is, yeah, but, you know, we know that. And I guess you come to realize that that's just the way it is. You know, um, there's no get, getting away from that. Uh, but it was nice to feel that kind of different dynamic of, you know, you can still have the sun. It could still be lovely weather outside and you can still be annoyed and upset and just negative and, and just hate your job and just hate your patients and hate your colleagues. And and that's still OK. <laughs> uh, let me see if the. Um, yeah. Can, can, can you hear me OK? Yes, I can hear you uh, fine. Oh, because I saw you laughing without any noise, and I thought maybe that was some sort of special power that you have. A uh, silent laugh, yes. Yeah, I've yeah. mastered that. I laugh at everything, and uh, at times it's inappropriate. It's not a funny laugh. It's more of a, a a reflex or a visceral laugh, and so I I've learned to mute that. Uh, yeah, you know, I tend to mute my. Um, I like to make fun of things. And that, yes. I used to love making fun of other people. I just absolutely love it. But I've learned to not do that anymore. So I only do it to the family now. And, you know, it's still not a good idea anyway. So if anyone needs some advice, do not make fun of your wife and your kids and family members. It's not a good idea. Uh-oh. See, you can't exist in my family if you don't, if you don't, if you can't take it uh i can give it i can give it and take it but then yeah i mean i can take it i mean but then i can give it as well so if you yeah. give it to me i'll i'll give it back but maybe right. with a with a bit more force and right but hey i mean i don't know i've i've definitely calmed that down and i think it's worked quite quite well actually because now they're kind of oh, all right he's not he's not saying anything let me you know not push it out there so is it it's it's become quite a civil environment now actually family get togethers <laughs> which <laughs> yeah which is quite good yeah. yeah which is quite we would just sit there we have our dinner you know and it's just quite cordial and and there's no drama and i and i thought well that's not bad actually i was i quite like this actually whereas before you just go go for the the, the throat and see who's who's left standing um, and the, and the dead ones are getting ready for the next attack next time. Uh, that reminds me of a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 
bring out your dad, bring out your dad. And uh, it's, I think it's a son bringing out his old decrepit father, like um, rotting from the, from uh, leprosy. And he goes, I'm not dead yet. Um, no, you got to make fun of him until. Until, until they, they keel over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I've, I've, um, I've decided not to do that anymore. Um, yeah, I feel much, much uh, more, more happy in a, in a good way, not in the sort of mm -hmm. the modern twenty twenty two way, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, not the addictive happy, but just the contented <laughs> happy. Yeah, I think that's an important thing, though, to to draw the difference between that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we get these high, we get these highs of dopamine, you know, just scrolling and things like that and then there's actually the ability to be happy and content with doing nothing which really is a skill to master especially in today's world where we have everything at our fingertips all the information you could ever think about and then i mean it's just instant gratification yeah yeah you know which is totally antithetical to you know the whole uh, human being project. Yeah, it just takes you in the wrong direction. Um, anyway, I mean we're, we're sort of going off at a, at a tangent here, and and you know I was I was going to ask you the first question, but it's it's sure. been like sort of half an hour into our. Um, so I mean I, I'm 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 quite fascinated by your your name Sapna. Yeah. Tell me more uh sure so my mom's mexican-american from san antonio and my dad's of indian origin born and raised in uh, east africa and tanzania so when uh when they got married it was a big deal right this was uh 1981 and then i came came along a year later uh the truth of the matter was that my mom was not supposed to have kids and then I popped up. Uh, her her pregnancy was quite um, was quite complicated, and I was actually about two months early. So when they uh, when they named me, they wanted something that went along with that story, as well as uh, reflecting the heritage. Um, you know, last name is Shaw. My 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 last name is Shaw. Uh, prior to uh, 20 or 2002 and so Sapna went along with that um, origin means dreams so kind of not being able to have kids and then having a horrible pregnancy delivery and uh, me existing in an incubator for about the first six weeks of my life uh, that's the name wow wow and and, and um, um, in terms of dreams did that sort of play on your mind thinking about dreams and dreaming all the time and were you a dreamy kind of person uh, a mix of uh a realist and uh and a dreamer i mean mm. i think dreams are what kind of get us to where we we where we where we are where we want to be in life right um i would say that being a physician was not always my dream you know, I also wanted to be a paleontologist and an archaeologist and a lawyer at some point in time. But, uh, you know, here I am. And 
what I had pictured for myself initially is completely different than where I am in life, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily, I mean, it's not bad. Otherwise I would, I would change that. What was so the, um, you know, what was the original dream sort of, you know, the first dream that you had? Yeah. The first dream was to do electrical engineering and then move either to the UK or Tel Aviv, Israel, just for the heck of it. I mean, why not? Um, and then I, I never intended on staying in the US. Uh, why? I, why? Not that I don't like it here. It's a great mm. country, but uh, there's so much to explore, right? I mean, we have a whole world and what better way than to actually live among the people? Yeah. So, I mean, um, my mom's a retired Spanish teacher. So I guess with the cultural mix, the religious mix, I'm kind of a cultural junkie. I mean, I love learning about different people, religions, languages. Uh, you know, I think just understanding more than what's in our four corners of the world really opens up that box and allows us to connect with people. Um, and it enriches my life for sure. So that's where that dream came from. And then when I went into medical school, I wanted to do Doctors Without Borders. But uh, having a family kind of kind of changed that uh, narrative. And I've stayed in Kansas, in, in, in rural Kansas. It's an underserved area. And I, I love it. So I'm not where I had dreamt I would be, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and uh, what, what was the first sort of um, religion that you were seriously exposed to and sort of really got your teeth into? Uh, so with my mom being Mexican-American, it's going to be Catholicism or mm. Catholic. And uh, but dad's background is Jain, which is a very small religion. Uh, I don't think it's very well known. Um, but they did ensure that I was exposed to about everything they could expose me to, including different sectors of Christianity, uh, Hinduism, Islam. Uh, my mom's best friend was uh, um, a convert and had married a Syrian. Uh, and they, they live in Saudi Arabia. So every couple of years when she would come over to the States, you know, even as a kid, I remember being exposed to, to all of that. Yeah, and mom, mom would sit me down and tell me about different things. And uh, she's very well read and she's traveled, both my parents have. And so that really ignited my uh, curiosity, I guess. Was there any kind of sort of creed that really, um, you know, talked to you? in your earlier years? Uh, I think in my early 20s, Buddhism did. Hmm. Buddhism did. I mean, as far as religion, I've I've read, I'm not going to sit here and say I've read every holy book. I've not, um, but I've studied uh, on my own time uh, different religions, and I kind of keep coming back to a mix of Buddhism and uh, the Catholic faith. I think it's just cultural what i've been brought up with and then um as far as buddhism uh, i just think it's uh it brings me inner peace when i can intertwine it with with a catholic faith and uh that might make some you know some uh, staunch catholics mad but 
I mean, you've even seen priests say, hey, yeah, you can study Buddhism and it makes you a better Christian. Um, I think all faiths are beautiful. I really do think that they have their place and teach their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are there any similarities between uh, the Catholic faith and Buddhism? I would, you know, it depends on which Catholic you ask, but from what I've seen, it's it's all about love. It's all about, honestly, at the root of it, live and let live and respect for life. Um, I think where things get jumbled is people's interpretation and really trying to hang their hat on which message is the better or the correct way. And what I, I mean, honestly, there's a, there's an, there's an approach of nonviolence with Buddhism. And if you look at the 10 commandments with, with uh, Christianity, I mean, it's, it's, it's in all the monotheistic religions, uh, thou shalt not kill. And it doesn't give you clauses when you can, uh, the golden rule with uh, Christianity, love your neighbors, I have loved you. So, I mean, <laughs> that that trumps everything else. So it's all about love and um, just respect. Um, the, the thought of meditation and prayer, uh, really living a good life. I mean, I think those are the, those are these commonalities of, of honestly all religion. And uh, what, what what did your father do? Well, what's your what's his background? His background is uh, Asian Indian. His family is his roots are from Gujarat, India, mm. and so um, he was, I think, second generation, born in Tanzania, and then he came over to the U.S. for uh, college, and that's where he met my mom and at Wichita State. So that was in those late 70s and of course that was taboo because thou shalt not date outside your culture or religion (laughs) yeah that's somewhere in the 10 commandments isn't it yeah yeah it's like number 11 (laughs) and it's you know it's also it's also for um it was for both really yeah i mean that was just the expectation for for um my my mom and my dad you know not that not that um not that my mom was expected to have an arranged marriage at all, but, you know, probably a Mexican Catholic. And my mom, my dad was expected to have an arranged marriage. Yeah. You know, they, was it because it was like, like what, what was it because it was a sort of the seventies college scene or was, was there something else? You know, some as far chemistry. as expect, as far as the expectations or as far as what they did. As far as what they did, you know, given that, you know, it was a rebellious time and, you know, a time of a total freedom and, you know, getting rid of all the shackles of, that was imposed on them by, by, by society as a whole. Uh, you know, honestly, I think I, I do think it was just true love. Mm. Um, I mean, love knows no boundaries so to speak. And at the end of the day, I think both my parents have a little bit of a rebel streak in them. 
So it's, uh, I don't want to say it was because of the seventies, but I, I honestly think that it was, it was true love and um, they were willing to take that leap regardless of what family or society said. Yeah. And, and sort of after you miraculously, you know, came out, um, uh, after you, did you have any brothers and sisters and what are they like? I'm an only child. Oh, wow. Right. A miracle, true miracle. <laughs> uh, you know, I have a lot of, I have cousins on my mom and dad's side and um, particularly on my, I mean, we're, we're close, we're close. Um, I can tell you that my grandmother had a lot of, my maternal grandmother, so the, we used to call her the general, uh, she had a lot of, a lot to do with my upbringing. Mm. Um, she was a military wife, my grandfather, so my my mom's dad was career Air Force, and prior to that, uh, three years in the Marines. Wow. And so, you know, she, my grandmother ran ran the household and the family with, uh, I'm not going to say an iron fist, but tough love. So growing up, I mean, I have great memories. She, she taught us how to uh, play baseball, ride a bike, uh, you know, all those things that uh, parents do. My grandmother was also out there doing um we weren't allowed to go inside if it was a, stay inside if it was a nice day she'd throw us outside and uh you know take the hose and water down some of this dirt pile and throw us some uh, old pie pans and just say go play outside in the mud it was great wow wow yeah i mean um i mean i had my mother i mean my you know because we left iraq um at a young age so I didn't have any of my grandparents, but I had my mother who was who was the boss, basically, you know, um, the boss of everything inside and out and, ev and everywhere in between. So, you know, I, I grew up with a with a massive matriarchal figure. Um, and that's why I'm more kind of matriarchal than patriarchal. You know, I'm not into the, um, you know, authoritarian hierarchy. You know, mm -hmm. I don't subscribe to it. Um, you know, de definitely more community driven. You know, the importance of community with a matriarch at the top of the community pile. Um, so I can understand that. Um, so I guess the pressure was off from you being um, an only child because you had lots of cousins around you and that kind of took the pressure off, I guess. Because I don't know what it feels like to be an only child. Because because I had um, two sisters and three brothers around me all the time. I don't. I I guess I don't uh, know what pressure. Um, there really were no expectations except to do my best. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was my parents never pushed me to be, become a doctor. I was always uh, do what makes me happy. And it so ended up being that medicine did. So uh, as far as the traditional, um, some of the traditional thoughts about, you know, the Indian culture, it was, it wasn't so much, I mean, it wasn't my dad that was saying, hey, you got to do this and all that. It was more like, hey, both my parents, again, they have that rebel streak. It was just do your best, make sure it's moral, ethical, and not illegal. And you'll be fine. Yeah. And and did did you get into sort of any fights when you were younger? Were you kind of quite 
boisterous and, and aggressive? No, uh -huh. I don't. I don't remember getting into any fights, um, debates or arguments. Sure. Mm. Right. Um, if something's wrong, I'm going to try to speak up and not just take it quietly. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to hold my boundaries and not get uh, suckered into certain things. But as far as uh, physical fights, no, I don't, I don't really like to fight. Um, it's more of a, I think boxing is a great exercise. Mm. And it's fun and cathartic. Um, but outside of that, I was more of a smart, a smart aleck. So mm. I did end up in the principal's office a couple of times, but was quickly sent out because it helps when you're when your mom's friends with the administration. Yeah, yeah, of 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 course. And you know, if you've got a grandfather who's in the Marines, that, that sort of goes a long way as well. <laughs> Uh, he was, it was, um, it was, it was, it was fun growing up, you know, uh, uh, I remember that, um, my, I had at the, at that time I had two cousins on my mom's side and we were all about a year and a half apart and I was the middle. So, uh, one time my grandfather had to, had to babysit us and my grandparents had bought this duplex and, um, he said, just just go play and don't make any noise. I'm going to go take a nap. And I mean, we were probably like four, five and seven, maybe. And of course we got into things that kids shouldn't get into like Clorox and bleach. Uh, and when my grandmother came home and she was, she couldn't find us. And when she finally found us, she asked us, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're playing chemists. And um, luckily nobody got hurt, but we got in trouble, if I can tell you, my grandfather got in more trouble because he wasn't properly watching us. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, were, were, were you involved in any kind of activism in your in your earlier years? Um, I'm trying to paint you as a rebel here, but it's not really working. I'm, I'm more of a quiet one. I'm more of a quiet one. Oh. Uh, one thing that I... So no, I've never been arrested. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. I was pretty sheltered. Mm. My mom did a really good job of sheltering me. Um, I can. Well, there's a social justice uh, committee in in uh, in Wichita, and I was I was involved in that. You know, I'm I'm I am big on. We live in a society and utopian ideals don't necessarily mesh well, but it's nice to think about that, right? Equity, uh, equitable access to, to healthcare, to food and things like that. So I was involved in that in, in, uh, in my early years. And then high school and uh, college took hold. And um, I think that's when my, I, I went from being an introvert to an extrovert. It was, I had to. So that's when, uh, I think that's when the transformation really took place. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I went from a, I, uh, 
went from a private Catholic school to a public university living in the dorms and um, met people from all over the world and um, discovered my love for music even more and dancing. So, I mean, uh, we were out at the clubs Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then anything else that we could that we could get into. Um, I'm not going to incriminate myself, but if it was 21 to enter, and I was, I was not 21 at the time, but I was there. Sure. So you sure. know there are ways around. Uh, it was just it was just a good time. I mean, I was actually able to uh, explore life outside of you know, outside of four walls, outside of um, expectations. I think that I had placed on myself, and you know, trying to be. Uh, well, my mom was a teacher and the uh, Catholic school diocese in, in, in Wichita at the time. So there was also this expectation that uh, I was not going to get in trouble. So I was just more of a smart ass than anything. Um, but with, with college, there was not that association. So I was able to let loose and uh, being away in the dorms, even though we were in the same city, um, mom, had, mom had her life and I had mine. So it was uh, more of self-exploration and uh, really coming out of my shell. I think that's I think that's when that happened. And then uh, getting into medicine, you can't be quiet. Otherwise, you get run over. So that even further um, developed my voice and my thought pattern. And forget what society thinks. I'm going to define myself. And, and, and how did you define yourself then? before you went into medicine what 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 major did you do as well before medicine so i actually started out electrical engineering and just there's some things that happened like my circuit smoking and i didn't care and i was like yeah, okay the smoke is cool and uh when that happened i'm like yeah i i don't like this i can do it but i don't like it so i dropped all my engineering classes Got a job in a hospital, I like being around sick people. So I uh, I switched my major to biology, switched universities, and that's that. And I would say that I would say that when I was in in college, it was more of uh, the first couple of years. It was more of self exploration, like why in the hell am I here? Um, never never self loathing but more of a, why am I here at this university? Why am I studying? What am I going to do with anything that I learn here? And why am I not, you know, out gallivanting around? Oh yeah. It's because I need money to actually go travel and um, explore different countries. So I need to have a, a, a living that would actually finance my, my uh, curiosity. And uh, that's not what, that's not what pushed me into medicine, but that is what uh, led me to be interested in Doctors Without Borders, right? I mean, again, going back to equity and really providing healthcare to an underserved population and being in a different culture, being in a different part of the world was very appealing. So maybe in 20 years I can do that, but right now I'm pretty darn happy where I'm at because uh, rural Kansas is, um, I love it here. 
people will accept you for who you are. Um, live and let live. Uh, I think the patients and like, yeah, there's just a different culture. Tell it like it is and don't sugarcoat things and be pretty straightforward, which might be a cultural difference with patients from a bigger city where there might be a little bit more hand-holding and um, being more subtle with the word choices. But here it's um, tell it like it is, don't sugarcoat it, don't be rude, but you know, okay, Doug, tell me what I got. Um, I'll tell him and what does that mean? Dude, you're not doing well, <laughs> you know? Um, or how am I doing, Doc? Hey, you're doing great. Whatever you're doing, keep it up. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, so I just appreciate the uh, candidness and the, and the relationships, which I think would be impeded by big city medicine because of the, they expect all the bells and whistles. And I think the culture is different as far as with patients um, approach to physicians, if that makes sense. Yeah, this whole sort of veneer of success and and uh, positivity and everything working. And um, you can't peel away that veneer at all, even if it means yeah. uh, delusion or downright deception. Yeah. Um, so why did you realize that hospitals were the thing for you? What What is it that made you realize that? I think it would be a few of the patients that I met. Mm. Uh, so I got a job doing a little bit of everything, right? Delivering trays, changing ice water, uh, answering call lights, um, a little bit of uh, janitorial work at the uh, at the end of the shift. So I got to, uh, I worked my way from the bottom up, right? And then after that, um, became a phlebotomist, worked, my, worked the rest of my way through college and master's being a phlebotomist. And what I, what I appreciated, what I really appreciated was seeing the patients at their most vulnerable state. You know, when somebody's in, when somebody's a patient, they're in the hospital, they're not feeling well, they're not there by choice. And when you have a patient that is in pain or in this tiny hospital gown that is not comfortable in a bed that is, oh, I'd rather sleep on the floor, but they're there for healing and they're, you, you get to, you just get to see patients at their most vulnerable, vulnerable spot. And there's something, it's a, I think it would be a vocation, a calling to, to be part of that. You know, it was a privilege to be part of that, even in a small way at the beginning when I was, and I knew that I wanted to have a bigger part of that. Um, I remember there was a, a sweet old lady. She was actually a nun when I was starting out and she had just had open heart surgery. And I, I think I had uh, rushed to class and um, from class to work and uh, just started talking to her. And I just thought, you know, this lady just got done with surgery. She's on the regular floor now. And she could be incredibly angry, 
and rude because she has just had major surgery and she would have that right. But she was kind. She was generous with her words. And we had a good conversation. And, you know, the only really I thought the only time I'd be able to really dive into this and take advantage of this and have more experiences like that, not only for me, but for the patient would be by going into medicine, by becoming a physician and really cultivating that, that relationship. So that's, that's when I knew I like this. I love this. So that's when I applied to medical school. And, and, um, how was medical school? What, what was that experience like compared to, you know, the first few years of turbulence in, uh, in college? College was a lot of fun. Uh, medical school is fun too, but, um, I actually had a study for the first time. I actually had a study, but also, um, the first time, so I, I redid my first year of medical school. The first year was like eight to five classes, lab. And you know, I had, I had no time for family and friends. And for me, that's a big deal. Like, especially with, with my grandmother, she was, she was terminally ill. And so at that point in time, with uh, the lack of balance, with things outside of medicine and not seeing daylight, not really having any time to do anything else but study. I withdrew. Um, I mean, I quit going to class. I really didn't want to do anything. And so I, I dropped my classes and I am talked to my uh, history professors from, from Newman university in Wichita. And I said, Hey, you know, I don't think I want to do medicine. It's not that I can't do it. It's just, you know, if I'm going to spend these long hours studying and not being able to do anything outside of medicine, uh, I don't want to do that because I need that balance in my life. I need variety. Um, and they said, well, what would you do? And I said, well, go get a PhD in uh, ancient world history, you know, become an Egyptologist or something. And they said, would you really be happy teaching? And I said, no, I want to be at the dig sites. You know, I want to be, I want to be exploring. I want to be traveling. And they said, yeah, it's not going to happen. So really think about what you want. And uh, at some point in time, I went to see a family doc and she tried to put me on a Prozac. You know, I was depressed. I said, no, I think I'm just grieving. You know, I, my grandmother at that point had just died and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And so I went home and I poured the medication down the toilet and uh, hopped in the car and I said, yeah, I'm just going to go see the family priest. And so I drove three hours down to Wichita, talked with um, Father John and he's Irish Catholic priest, has known me since I was born. And he goes, what do you really want to do with your life? And so uh, I re-enrolled because I wanted to give it another shot. And the, uh, my medical school had um, revamped their uh, lecture series. So instead of you know, eight hours of lecture, it was like three or four. So they really cut out half the fluff. And so by one o'clock, lectures were on, uh, lectures were on podcasts, and I was able to do that double time, like half the time that it would take me to sit in class. So it was more efficient. I was able to study outside, um, was able to enjoy a lot more things and still 
still study and still do well in medical school. What 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 were you doing outside medical school at the time to kind of give you that balance? Uh, we lived in Kansas City at the I lived in Kansas City at the time, so exploring the city. Um, it's a it's a real fun city. Uh, I mean, I like to find little little places um, that are off the beaten track. Uh, found a nice Turkish restaurant. There are plenty of Persian restaurants. So ex then experimenting uh, with cuisine. Um, for me, it's a creative process. So it, not only that, but just going down to uh, going down to like the outdoor, the open air market. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. Not that I could afford anything, but you know it was it was fun to go look around, be outside, um, and and just just watch people go by. Yeah, yeah, and and were you sort of married at the time, or still single, or or sort of nothing serious, or? I was married at the time. Uh, I got married in two thousand two, and uh, that was. That was uh, kind of a repeat of my my parents in the nineteen in the nine in nineteen eighty one. So, yeah, it's uh, no was married at the time. Um, still married, so it's uh, yeah, yeah it, we, it, we it's just... it's an ongoing. Uh, I mean, I was going to say torture, but you know we shouldn't really say that. Um, <laughs> but you know, like a good kind of torture. You know, maybe a a, a constant tickle. Or a constant itch that needs to be itched. Sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't totally get in trouble. <laughs> no, um, just I mean, broke medical student. What can you do? So you know, just going and exploring the city. Um, yeah. Kansas City is really a vibrant city. Um, one of my favorite places in Kansas City is the uh, the Phoenix. It is a uh, it's a jazz bar, mm -hmm. so great music, interesting people watching. So, and just yeah, like I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it allows you to sort of come out of the the frames uh, of medicine, you know, which are just sort of uh, lattice structures which you have to work within, and then you can yes. step outside of that, you know, through music and dance and literature and and um, art and you know just 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 the non-lattice like structures of of uh, the other part of human experiences yeah um and your husband if i remember is actually muslim if i'm right he is yes he's a practicing sunni muslim wow yeah so um yeah you know and uh i presume you have children or we do. Yes. We do have so, kids. So they'll probably go down some other funky route as well into God knows where. That's that's perfectly fine, you know. Again, whatever <laughs> whatever speaks to them and makes them happy. Yeah. Uh I think the biggest I think the biggest problem I would have is, is if they turned out atheist. Yeah. yeah. So I I and then again, I think, you know, as long as they're not, as long as like they don't join a cult, maybe that's even better. 
maybe being an atheist is better than joining a cult who knows yeah but, uh, i mean the probabilities are quite are quite small the probabilities yeah. are quite small um but you know i mean it's a growing uh phenomenon for sure worldwide yeah. you know uh, atheism um but you know but now there is a backlash towards um monotheistic and uh, conservative ways of thinking i think that's definitely i mean that's definitely happening in the states and possibly here in the uk so i see that kind of coming back uh, as a reaction to the um you know nihilistic ways of thinking mm -hmm. uh, which is quite prevalent at the moment um but let's see let's see um uh so you know sort of going through medical school it was sort of more of oh i've got to get through this and and uh get out the other end was that the kind of feeling no, inside? I, once the once the medical school really revamped their um hmm. their curriculum it was a much better time hmm. i mean i don't mind putting in long hours but i have hmm. to have time in order to uh you know have an outlet and get proper sleep proper sleep might mean four or five hours but you know within that structure i also need to be able to goof off yeah. blow off some steam otherwise um it's not fun and i become a robot and i just do and do and do and that's that's not living life that's just existing for me so I have to be able to cultivate and really explore that silly side or explore that creative side, listen to live music, go people watching, explore a city, you know, even if it's just for 30 minutes, but if with the, with the old structure from eight to five every day and then going home and studying to me, that just wasn't worth it because that was not a life I wanted to commit to for four years or beyond. So for me, the, the payoff was not worth the time in, but with the restructure that allowed me to be myself and not so, not so uh, structured. And this is all you're going to do for four years. For me at that point in time, the payoff was definitely worth that time invested. And then uh, after you finished medical school, what was that? What was that like? What was that feeling like? What, what was going through your head? Sure. Um, residency, you know, picking a resident or applying for residency um, for most, I think is stressful. I had a good time with it. I, I had, a, I had, a, I had fun with it. Um, I knew I wanted to do internal medicine because just, I love the problem solving. I love the patients and I, you can get a mix of everything. Right. So, and I, I like it. I like adults, um, not crazy about kids or treating pregnant women. Um, so I had a blast applying for residency, got to visit different places, got lost in Napa Valley, canceled a few interviews because of that just because i wanted that experience within napa took a wrong turn and got lost i mean i'm not going to rush that experience to go interview at a place that more than likely i would not rank 
So why do that? I think I was ups- I think I was really pissed off when I applied for residency, uh, based looking back on some of my choices. Um, but I mean, it was it was fun, and I ended up staying in Wichita, my hometown. Um, I wanted to work with Dr. Donna Sweet, who um, is an HIV expert, world world renowned. Um, and what better place, you know, I, I, what better place than to work crazy hours and stay close to family. So that's, that's how I ended up staying in Wichita. And, uh, the most part resident, I mean, residency was tough, um, had fun. There were a couple of attendings that were malignant and yes, I did develop a stutter and a tremor when I would talk to them. Um, brought that to admins. Um, I brought that to the administration's, uh, attention and that was corrected. Um, it wasn't from lack of knowledge or anything. Uh, just for whatever reason, it was a personality clash. I don't want to know why. Um, I'm thankful for that experience post. Why? Why? Why are you thankful because it, for that? Well, yeah, it sucked going through it, right? Because there are two, three months that I'm never going to get back. But at the same time, uh, taught me what not to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't be that attending. And hey, you know what? Remember that medical students are broke. So, but you know, um, don't ask them to go out and do crazy things like, hey, go go buy a twenty dollar movie because you're gonna have to watch it for class. You know, be cost conscious with when you're giving assignments. Um, when you're working with residents, be kind. Figure out what 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 way they learn best and um try to implement that uh am i perfect all the time no but i do try to keep it at the forefront of my mind um yeah don't don't be that don't be that don't be that attending that i didn't like back in (laughs) residency well said well said well said yeah um yeah i mean certainly and i can see that in, in in myself you know being in a senior position how even just just the way my eyes look and the way my my my, my eyebrows position themselves can can have a big influence on the uh on my colleagues who work um under me mm-hmm. um and it's quite um it's frustrating but <laughs> but but you've got to be um you've got to be better you got to be better than that um yeah. you know and this whole jealousy thing such a massive thing you know you see all these young vibrant fit uh energetic doctors and um yeah and you're sort of old and decrepit and falling apart and um everything's uh not working so well and you know this this virtue of uh well lack of uh well it's not really a virtue but you know sin of uh jealousy comes creeping in you start slipping um but yeah yeah it's a different kind of work that we have to do isn't it yeah you know being in yeah. these positions and i saw that you did um an mba what was what was the uh the story behind that 
Sure. So um, when I first took the MCAT, I did not take it seriously. And uh, what's I the MCAT? Hard. I mean, I forgot what the MCAT is. The medical college admissions test. Right, right. And what and sort of what kind of stage do you, do you have to do that? Um, about junior year, sophomore, junior year of uh, college. Right. So you know, I'm twenty, twenty one, hmm. and I need to take this serious test. And uh, I did not take it seriously. Um, so I did not do well. And then I took it seriously and started uh, studying. So in order to buy time, um, it was cheaper to keep going to school at that point in time than it was to pay back my student loans for a private college wow. or for a private university. And so I enrolled in a 10-month uh, MBA program. And during that time, so it was, that, it was 2004 to 2005, um, I was working about 60, 70 hours a week doing a full-time MBA and uh, applying to med school. It's fun times, fun times. I can tell you Starbucks or venti coffee twice a day really got me through that. So uh, that was... Um, and the reason why I did that instead of like going for another bachelor's was because when I was looking at medical schools, I saw very few offering MD, MBA. And uh, I thought, you know, medicine to keep doors open, you have to look at the finances. And I didn't know how I wanted to frame that, but I thought it would be helpful and at least in personal finance, um, if I ever wanted to do any type of business. So I, uh, that's the reason why I did an MBA. So it was just a, just an opportunity at the right time. And, and was it helpful? I think it has been helpful, you know, with, uh, understanding certain things or knowing what questions to ask or trying to figure out, for example, um, with contract negotiation, not that I'm going to negotiate my own contract, but I think I, I know a little bit more of what to ask or um, maybe more of can sit down and look at finances in a spreadsheet much better. Um, maybe with communicating my ideas or understanding things that are said at uh you know the the meetings that we all go to about hospital or clinic finances etc i'm um, looking how to optimize or even uh, uh cut costs things like that so I, th I think it definitely helps me understand the business side and where they're coming from instead of oh my gosh it's always it's always cutting and uh, you know, taking it personally, that's, it's a business decision. And unfortunately it's just the way it is, but how can we, how can we work around that? So that way, um, so I think it also helps problem solving skills. Yeah. Yeah. I like that thing about not taking it personally because, you know, in my sort of junior years, I, I, I would take things personally, not realizing that it's, you know, just financial and business decisions and, 
nothing to do with you really right and and that's the thing like most most decisions don't um have anything to do with us as physicians personally their business decisions i think the problem with physicians is that we don't have enough physicians at those discussions mm. we belong at those tables because we're in the trenches but I also think that part of a physician's personality is, oh my gosh, if I don't know everything there is to know about that one subject, I'm not going to comment on it. Mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. we self-censor a lot. And I also think that's the culture of medicine that has really been driven into us. Mm. But the, the truth of the matter is we're very creative, resilient, brilliant human beings. And we learn so much with our training that we do belong at that table. And even if we don't have, you don't have to have an MBA. Yeah. yeah. You have common sense mm. for the most yeah. part. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right. But I, I, th I think some kind of grammar or language or uh, some kind of framework uh, or understanding of business or um, um, business administration does go a long way. So that we, you know, as you said, we can sit at that table and we can follow the conversation mm -hmm. um, and not be reluctant to give our own, you know, personal clinical view with regards to business administration. I think it'll go a long way to relieving the kind of tensions that happen between management and, and medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so you finished the sort of residency and you sort of settled yourself into... into um, you know, some kind of regular work. Um, was that going well or did the kind of sort of the burnout boredom set in or yeah, what happened? It was definitely not boredom. It was uh, definitely burnout. It was, so, I mean, I, I love, yeah, I'm, I'm a, uh, it's, it's one of those things, right? You ask me right now, no, I don't like country music. You ask me on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock. Yeah, I love country music, right? So the the, the truth kind of worked its way out. Um, the truth of the matter is that I really appreciate the state of Kansas. Again, it's just a very straightforward culture where I'm practicing. And uh, we can agree to disagree and still be civil. So when I, after residency, it was in 2013, I moved down to Winfield I had signed a contract here in order to pay back um, my medical school to the state. I had signed a contract that for every year of medical school, I'll do uh, one year of under one year in an underserved area. Right. So when I was looking for a job, that's what I was looking to fulfill. But coming down here to Winfield, um, meeting the CEO of the hospital at the time and uh, the physicians and I'm still very good family friends with that retired CEO and other, other members. Um, and I just really love the community. So when I started practicing here in 2013, building a practice, doing inpatient, it was, it was great. Um, but then about a year and a half into it, uh, with being an internist in a small town, not only do I admit my own patients and see patients in clinic, but I also, which I did not really think about, I was also a consultant. So it was, it was great experience, but when you have a full clinic and then you have about a full patient panel in the hospital, 
it becomes overwhelming. And then there's the culture of never saying no. Um, and even if I was off on a weekend or off on a holiday and I got consulted, I was expected to go in. So I really never had any protected time. And doing that day in and day out for three years, I, I, I burned out. I burned out. And then to to uh, make matters worse, uh, my my mom had a major stroke that um, really pushed me to move from practicing here in Winfield full time to uh, taking a step back uh, because this was a a lady that was very independent, um, reading, writing, and fluent in multiple languages. All of a sudden, could not read or write. Um, had memory issues, could not drive, had lost some vision. Uh, so she needed 24-hour care. So I restructured and um, and you know doing working the hours that I was working with trying to balance family life for about the six the last six months was uh, absolutely difficult. You know, um, so I, uh, I, I started only working two days, a, two days a month down here in Winfield and overseeing the nurse practitioner and, uh, transitioned to a position at the VA in Wichita, which was, which was at that point in time, a godsend because it was Monday through Friday, outpatient only, no call, uh, weekends were protected. And so that allowed me to be you know, with my family allowed me to be present. And, um, during the week I would stay with, uh, with my mom and then I'd come back to Winfield on the weekend. And it's only, it's only an hour's drive, but, um, still the back and forth and trying to figure out coverage, things like that. It was, it was tough. It was tough. And then, uh, expanding the family and, um, yeah, it was, it was challenging, but, uh, you know, a lot of extended family and friends in Wichita. So by How'd you get through it, uh, again, just a lot of family and friends. Um, my mom's doc was my best friend at the time from medical school and residency. So, um, Dr. Bicker did make house calls or would, uh, guide me through some of the things that we'd have our banter back and forth about treatment options. But then also just, you know, sitting down and um, trying to delegate different things like, okay, meal planning, meal prepping. Um, I had a very supportive boss at the time at the VA who was uh, uh, very family oriented. For example, like when I when my mom had her heart calf and um, you know, it's no big, it's usually no big deal. Uh she said, Sapna, why don't you take lunch? Why don't you take the day off and go? I said, no, I'd rather work half a day and keep my mind off of it. She goes, well, you only have one mother. I said, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm aware of that. But uh, for me to kind of deal with this, I need to work today. Hmm. Um, uh, it's just things like that. Uh, so I had a very supportive boss at Wichita's where most of my mom's family is and friends. So we had a lot of support. We had a lot of support. Um, and then me personally, uh, uh, boxing gym three times a week. That was, that was a lot of fun. 
So great way to just burn off some energy and uh, frustration and just mentally picturing whoever you want to beat up that day. Just imagine that on the heavy bag and uh, it's just cathartic. About an hour later, you feel great and uh, ready for the next, you know, the next work day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and was it getting easier for you or, or were you just kind of coping by doing these things? No, it was actually getting easier. Easier. Yeah. Because I had my protected time. Yeah. Yeah. And again, if, if I don't have that time to go goof off and, you know, explore and, and explore and enjoy other things in life, then um, for me, it's not worth it. I have to have that balance because when, when I don't have that time, when I don't have that time to myself or to explore for right now, it's podcasting, right. Or, or writing or reading. If I don't have that time, it's uh, I become grumpy. I get irritable. I really go into robot mode and I, and it's just on autopilot and that's just not a way for me to exist. Uh, well, that's just existing for me. That's not living. Yeah. And and when was sort of the next burnout kind of phase, or you haven't gone through it, through it yet? You sort of. No, okay. I. I did go through my second burnout. Um, in twenty nineteen. So the first one was about twenty sixteen. The second one was twenty nineteen. Um. My my best friend from medical school and residency, Dr. Bicker, died by suicide. And um, you know, when when that happens, it really really shakes you to your core and you're just, what the heck? Um, I remember I was at I was at I was at work, I was at the VA and her her spouse called me and he goes, uh, Sapna Pig's dead. And I said, what, what are you talking about? This, is this some type of bad joke? This is, this isn't funny. And he goes, no, she's, she's dead. I said, come on, where is she? Car accident? What? Let's, let's really, where is she? He goes, no, she's in the morgue. And uh, she was supposed to potentially come work at the VA with me. Yeah, right next door. That's uh, that was the plan. And um, unfortunately, she had had to close her practice for because of cost. The overhead is crazy. The reimbursement from Medicare, which is, you know, for old people is piss poor. And when a longtime staff member quit. It, it was just way too expensive to replace. So it was from no fault of her own that she had to 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 close her private practice. And um, it, it became, I think, overwhelming for her. Uh, I wish I could say that um, it was, you know, there, were, there, were, there was writing on the wall when she did that, but there wasn't. And when, when that happened, um, that happened. I I know what I told my boss, and 
one of the uh, one of our mentors that was also working at the VA and um, and then I drove home and uh, I I told my family and uh, when something like that happens man you just you just you think what the hell am I doing and And, you know, it's, it's life-changing. It's life-changing. And, you know, I, it was a great place that I was working, but with the lack of boundaries, you can see patients when they walk in and you're, you're getting ready to leave and you can't say no. And you can't say no that you can't see them if they're an hour late. You can't treat physicians like that. And so with my best friend's death and the lack of boundaries, um, and then knowing I didn't want to raise my kids in a city that had changed. Yeah, I took a step back. Went part-time and um, actually came back down to the place that uh, I originally started back in back to Winfield and uh you know it was really through it, again had an awesome boss at the VA uh through her support the support here um in Winfield because Peg was originally from Winfield um but just support from the community and even administration um I, I have a, I have a great balance now part-time part-time physician outpatient only because we have a hospitalist group now and uh, especially with the with the uh subspecialties that we have it's really necessary you know we're doing some pretty awesome things down here in south southeast kansas but that was that was my my second journey through burnout in 2019 and then the pandemic hit and uh here we are yeah yeah well that's that that's um sorry to get you all upset and and um no no i mean sorry for the raw emotion but it it really sometimes it hits and sometimes it doesn't and i think it just hit today and i'm i'm okay with that yeah you know yeah. it's um i'm open with the fact that it has put me in counseling for the last two years um but i think it has also helped to make some changes for example um there was a note that she wrote and it it was basically she did not seek professional help because she did not want professional repercussions uh, that got back to the Board of Healing Arts. And I would like to think that it was part of the transition. Maybe this was already planned, but um, when we go to fill out the uh, our renewal for the licensure every year, there there had been questions like, do you have do you suffer from anxiety, depression, substance abuse? And now that's consolidated into a question that 
into one that says like do you suffer from anxiety depression or um substance abuse that would impair your ability to practice medicine and so i think um you know silver lining uh, nothing will replace dr baker um but you know i think some good has come out of a big loss that questions have been changed the board of healing arts is very pro physician here in kansas they want the physicians to get help um so i'm i'm pretty open with the fact that i've that i go to therapy um it's made me a better physician a better person um so my parent my, my patients say no oh, that's not going to help i'm like well yeah i thought that a couple of years ago but it's really helped me and when i don't like when i have to reschedule my therapy it's you know it's i don't like doing that right so it's silver lining yeah yeah um and um i mean we won't go into the pandemic because that that probably needs a whole podcast in itself and uh, <laughs> you know probably takes hours and hours of sort of decompressing exactly what went on there um and in 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 terms of the podcast what what was the you know the whole idea and and sort of backstory in, in terms of the podcast sure you so know, the worthy physician podcast Right. So that was actually because of Peg's death, right? Um, after her suicide, I started reading about, you know, how many how many physicians do we lose to suicide a year? Why are physicians taking their own lives? Because there's this thought that we're physicians, we have it all, right? We have we have a glamour job, we have uh we have According to the according to the general public, we should be having this conversation on a yacht or something, right? Yeah. Because we make tons of money, and yet we lose three hundred to four hundred physicians a year in the U.S. And I I would not be surprised if the numbers are similar in the U.K. Mm. Why is that? You know, why would somebody want to take their own life when? When we have access to physicians and we have access to to therapists, you know, I mean, these are people we hang out with and go out to dinner with, right? Because we work together. Why would we do this? Why would we do this to ourselves? And so about a year and a half of reading and um, really, uh, really thinking about it. And then the pandemic hit and when they were asking physicians to come out of retirement, but wanting to pay thousands of dollars to mid-levels to fly to New York to, to take care of patients. That's, I just, that did not sit well with me. You know, you're really asking something from physicians who are the best trained in the healthcare profession to volunteer, but you're going to pay thousands of dollars to others that are half trained did not sit well with me. Again, you're asking altruistic individuals to put themselves in the on the front lines because that's what medical school brainwashes you to do whereas i think there's a different model with the mid-levels and say oh yeah uh, i took one online course for this over the weekend so i can go out and do this now um and that's generalizing and not painting a very good picture 
Uh, I work with great mid-levels in the office and I've worked with awesome PA at the VA, uh, even nurse practitioners. So it's not that I'm anti-mid-level. What I am anti is not treating the physician equally. You cannot ask a physician to come out of retirement or to volunteer when you're willing to pay somebody else with less experience to treat the sickest. So with that, I launched the Worthy Physician podcast as a way to express, um, I think as a way to express myself, as a way to grieve, and as a way to really start looking into why are why are physicians burning out? Why are physicians undergoing moral injury? How common is this story? How common is this narrative? And why aren't we talking about it more? Because you know that we're not alone. I know I'm not the only one. Now I know I'm not the only one that went through this. You know, it's um, something that we really got to normalize and talk about because that's the only way that we're gonna, going to have our voices heard and to get change. So that way we do have a seat at that table for the betterment of healthcare, the betterment of work conditions for physicians. So that way we can actually practice medicine and not practice box checking. So that way we can actually practice under human con humanistic conditions and not one where we're expected to be awake for 36 hours, just because that's the way it's always been. Because we also know that sleep deprivation is almost worse than driving intoxicated. We have medical errors that increase, but you know, if something happens at the 36th hour, it's going to be the physician's fault, not the system's. And if the physician tries to say, no, I can't do that because I'm tired, they're going to be chastised. That's not right. So that's the long-winded answer. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, we certainly are a traumatized profession and we've been traumatized for many, many decades. Um, and I guess the, uh, you know, the many platforms of communication are available now and now it's, you know, it's given us the opportunity to actually express our communication in that way. Um, but we're still traumatized for sure. You know, there's a lot of processing and healing that needs to go on and um i guess that's what's happening <laughs> well, yeah. i mean let's let's look at your book right yeah i mean you didn't tell me about my book did you did you you sort of you've, <laughs> you know you've kept it quiet is it really that bad is it no it's not bad at all i i enjoyed it because i can i can when i'm reading it i can hear your voice in my head oh dear you know, reading it back to me and uh <laughs> That's not a bad thing. I really think you should uh, consider narrating it on like Audible or something. But yeah. I want my I want my medical students to read it. Yeah. Because it's nice to, it's unfortunate what you've gone through. But the beautiful part is that it's a narrative that you've put down, and for other crazy doctors like myself and the the future docs to read, to know that. Are you sure is, you want to expose your medical students to that kind of? book <laughs> you know it's not a very uh, uh you know um what's the word um well-trodden path it's sort of all over the place but that's life isn't it is it yeah that's life and i mean how do you put a journey a life's journey into 
concise chapters you know this is not this is not a manual yeah if this is an experience and it's all over the place i mean that's fine because yeah you know one of my favorite quotes was I, i'm gonna i'm paraphrasing it but it was something like um yeah so do your thing at your own pace as long as you get to where you want to be there's no loser in the situation and that's really hard for did i write that <laughs> i can't remember any of this stuff <laughs> it, 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 it has your it has your name it has on my the, name on, on the it cover yeah, so yeah, it's got my picture on it as well yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's but as a as a type A personality, as a physician that, you know, we're always supposed to be perfect 100% of the time and look at this person, they're in academics, look at that person, they're at Harvard, and this one's at Yale, and this one, yeah. we're all physicians at the end, or we're all people at the end. So quit trying to race against everybody else. Just start competing with yourself in a healthy way. Quit comparing their timeline to yours because we're all, we're all, nobody's going to win the, the race against time, right? Mm -hmm. So just do what makes you happy. And as long as you're still making progress and you're getting to where you want to be, that's, that's the main thing. Yeah. I mean, it's doing those painful things and it was really painful writing that book. You know? Yeah. But yes, I do want to expose my students to that because they need to know the truth about life. And that's life is tough. It's not all bells and whistles, um, but they're, they're, they're beautiful points. And we also have to celebrate those along with, you know, trying to find the silver lining and in, uh, in the downtimes and really trying to figure out how to get through those downtimes. And what are we going to do with that? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, we can go on for another hour and, and you know, we probably need to come back and sort of sure. uh, um, readdress these issues. I mean, the last thing I, I, I wanted to sort of kind of get your views on was, you know, this whole notion around around moral injury. Sure. So, you know, what is it all about and what's your take on things? And then, you know, what's the kind of obviously we got to end with solutions to dealing with moral injury because we're physicians isn't it so sad isn't it right uh yeah moral injury is real um and i think that's i can definitely tell you it's part of the reason why i uh started the podcast again going back to dr Bicker's suicide um that really rocks you that really rocked me to my core uh, moral injury exists right it's um anything that is going to really challenge your core beliefs um, we go into medicine to heal patients and it's not for the money. So to work in a system where we have to crank out X amount of patients and, um, RVUs, uh, goes against what we've, what we've trained for. Um, and while I understand, Sorry, what are, what are, what are, what are, what are RVUs? It, it's like, um, it's a number it's a value number attached to everything we do here right. in the uh, U.S. So, so dollar signs for each kind of medical thing that you do. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, the actual, what the abbreviation stands for is not coming to mind right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, 
And then asking to do more with less, not having enough support staff, um, a patient satisfaction of, I'm going to give you a bad review because you didn't give me my narcotics or because you didn't tell me the diagnosis I wanted to hear or, you know, things like that. Being blamed for bad outcomes because the patient wouldn't change their lifestyle. Um, all of that, you know, being, having no boundaries, putting our patients first and always before addressing our own needs and expecting decent work conditions, not having a seat at that table, all that I believe adds to moral injury because we are not just, I mean, we're the highest trained professions in medicine and yet we're being treated as one of the least valued physicians here in the U S are being replaced with mid-levels. For example, anesthesiologists or certified physicians are being fired and being replaced with CRNAs. So like nurse practitioner of an anesthesia or of anesthesiology or in a, you know, that's what, that's, that's what they're going to be. That's who's going to be giving you anesthesia for surgery. Nurse practitioners can practice alone without any physician supervision when a lot of them have X amount of clinical hours and doesn't even touch the thousands of hours that physicians have undergone training that has supervised training in a rigorous structure, passing multiple tests here in the US. And then turning around and cutting physician salary or uh, having a nurse practitioner as a head of a department is just ridiculous. But the difference is that they figured out a way to unionize and to have a voice that is much louder than physicians. And at this point in time, I would say those who can yell the loudest are winning. That does not make it right because all I hear is chatter, but those that are yelling the loudest are winning. So physicians need to organize our voice and we cannot, I don't think the American Medical Association or ACP or any of the colleges um, can actually be that voice because there's no, there's a lack of union and what the message is. Does that answer your question? Um, it does, it does to a certain extent. Um, that we do need need to actually have more more of a uh, collective and combined single message that allows us to create greater influence and um uh, as you said uh, increase the worth of our profession among society because the whole world's going to pay the price uh, yeah. for not treating their physicians well um Everyone's going to suffer. I don't know what it is like in the UK, but when you're expected to see X amount of patients in order to keep the doors open, I understand that. Again, going back to business, I understand the figures. But at the same time, um, you can't expect a physician to, I mean, there have been studies that takes like everything a primary care doc does in a day. And, you know, that's just in the what, eight to 10 hours of clinic. It takes like 26 hours to actually do it accurately. Now that's just unsustainable. So we really need to main, make this make this system not more patient friendly. While we do need to have better access to care, 
we're only going to expand that by keeping our physicians and you know in medicine in the next two years 20 to 25 percent will be leaving or cutting back yeah yeah um yeah and you know the work the work that physicians do i mean as you sort of suggested you know the they have that ability to to um you know do the relevant work otherwise you end up spending 100 times more money for 10 10 times less work you know because of the experiences that we've accumulated and the um and the uh the wisdom that we have not that right. you know we're, we're we're saying we're super wise and everything but we're efficient at what we do yes um so for sure i mean you know here in the uk it's exactly the same and un- 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 unfortunately there is a political uh undercurrent that undermines the medical profession on a continuous basis and that's turned into a sort of cultural um undermining uh, of society in general against doctors um so you know for sure that's happening here and um, all you can do is keep swimming you know whichever the way the tide goes there's no other way really and you know to a certain extent i enjoy it you know i enjoy being a uh, underdog and you know people underestimate you i quite like that i feel very uncomfortable when i'm put on a pedestal and sort of i'm expected to sort of you know they give me too many accolades i, I get very uncomfortable about that um yeah very uncomfortable indeed but i'm kind of becoming more comfortable with the accolades for sure i was gonna say that's actually where the um the uh quiet rebellious part comes out is because you know the system wants me to dress a certain way and appear a certain way and Mm -hmm. uh say yes to everything and um while the system needs to change and physicians need to have a more united collective voice one thing I would definitely say that has worked for me is uh, drawing boundaries and staying, you know, sticking to them. Yep. And then re- one way to rebel against the system is I'm still within dress code. If I'm in uh, my cowboy boots, scrubs, and my leather jacket, I am still within dress code and um, I'm comfortable. The patient's pretty comfortable with me. And uh, that's just my way of saying, screw it to the system i'm not gonna bend and i am going to be my most authentic self which is pretty straightforward what you see is what you get and if it does not work for me and it does it is uh, not true to who i am i will change that narrative um so that's my personality coming out that's uh and yes i do have about five or six leather jackets Um, but that's how, that's how I've been able to, uh, turn this into, into, um, this is how I have found my authentic self. This is how I represent my authentic self with a system that wants us to be all the same. And, uh, that's, that's just boring. Um, I mean, for me, as long as I'm wearing shorts and I've, and I've covered my nipples, I'm okay. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
you know, you may get a few crying, but you know, if you can twirl those things that cover your nipples, it's even better, you know, because you've got to make sure that the eye movements are working. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you're, and it's not exactly like you're in Carnival or in Vegas or anything like that. So there you go. Cool. I mean, I'd like to end on this sort of question. I tend to ask this question sort of at the sure. end. Um, you know, we've got to end somewhere. Um, yes. So what is your kind of three top tips to the sapner that's about to, you know, leave uh, the world of Catholicism and go into the big wild world of the... Uh, the rebellious college life what would what would your three top tips be to her given what what you've experienced what you've experienced over the last few years sure so one thing if i were talking to myself 20 20 years ago i'd definitely say speak up louder sooner i would also say um don't overthink don't overthink everything, right? And uh, believe in yourself more. Believe in yourself more. Um, definitely think there was some self doubt. Never some. Never any uh, self loathing or anything like that. But again, just believe in yourself more for sure. It's been awesome, Sapna. Great speaking hey, to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hyder. Pleasure as always.